Hear the word of God from the final chapters of Job. From Job 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. From Job 39. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom, and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command, and build its build its nest on high it dwells on a cliff and stays there at night a rocky crag is its stronghold from there it looks for food its eyes detect it from afar its young ones feast on blood and where the slain are there it is from Job chapter 40 the Lord said to Job will the one who contends with the almighty correct him Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? From Job chapter 41. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? From Job chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Church family, good to see everybody this morning looking beautiful and wonderful inside our building here. What a blessing it is to have a secure, safe, comfortable place to gather as a people in sacred assembly. And I hope you guys understand that as there are brothers and sisters around the world who don't have this privilege, who don't have this luxury, there are brothers and sisters around the world who would love to have a place where they can gather as a body together, to come together, to worship together, to hear the word of the Lord expressed together, to sing songs together, to pray together. And what a joy it is that we get to do this. And as we come together, may we always remember that the beautiful, sacred assembly that he's called us to is the family and community he's called us to live life with so that the, the world is changed by the advancing of his kingdom in our community together. 
So I just love the fact that we get to come together and worship God together. We're finishing our very short dive into the book of Job today. We'll be continuing to be in the wisdom literature for the next weeks or so, as we, or the next five weeks or so, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Then we're going to continue our series in the book of Song of Songs, or otherwise known as Song of Solomon. And that we're very intentional here that we did these books together in a series. Because they're meant to be understood together. The wisdom literature as a whole is meant to show you unique perspectives on the good life and how to learn to live with wisdom and the fear of the Lord. So they're not meant to be read by itself. So I'm not encouraging, I, I, yes, read the, read the whole Bible, but if you just, don't just read just Ecclesiastes, you might be depressed. I'm just being honest with you. You might just leave you like, ooh, okay, I'm done. But don't just read just Song of Solomon, because that's like a little weird if you just read that. But read it all together, because they're meant to be understood together. It's this beautiful combination of Proverbs. When you read Proverbs, you realize good things generally happen if you work hard and you fear the Lord and you seek wisdom and you do the right things. Good things tend to happen. But then Job comes around and says, but then, yeah, bad things can happen if you even do the right things too. Which is reality of the world, isn't it? And then Ecclesiastes comes around and says, wait a minute, if good things happen if you do good things, but good things also happen to people who do bad things, and bad things happen to people who do good things, then what's the point? This is all meaningless. Then you have Psalms who expresses the whole anatomy of the human soul that says, I'm so confused, I cry out, I need help, uh, God just do something. And then this whole combination of all these wisdom books put together show you that here's the reality, here's different perspectives of the human experience, but ultimately fear of the Lord Trusting and knowing him is the beginning of true wisdom and good living. And so they're meant to be understood together as a whole. So here we are at the end of the book of Job. And so far we saw a righteous man who has suffered to a ridiculous degree. He's lamenting, crying out in pain. His buddies come to comfort him. And then Job goes on this roller coaster ride of emotions from deep despair to trusting God to cursing the day he was born to singing an ode to wisdom. By the time we reach chapter 38, all of his friends have had their say. They've gone back and forth with them. Even a random stranger named Elihu comes around, which I didn't have time to go into Elihu and who he is, this random person that comes up later on. But if you check out the, web, uh, the realm, I'll have an article posted on the realm about who Elihu is. Okay, so there'll be more information. We just didn't have time to dive into him at all. But now it's time for God to talk. And man, he does. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud, and God calls out to Job and says, Who is, I wish I had like Morgan Freeman voice now, or like one of those really good voices. Who is this, I can't do it. I'm not even going to try. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And I love that phrase there, brace yourself. It literally translates literally in the Hebrew to dressed for action. It's a verb which comes from the field of wrestling. It literally comes from like, get dressed, get ready, gird up for a fight. And Job is saying, Job has been asking for a fight, hasn't he? He wants an epistemological, he wants a philosophical, he wants an argument of words and thoughts with God. He wants a fight. He wants a fight about ideas. So God gives him a fight. Now God doesn't give Job a straight answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation he had with the Satan, the adversary, Satan, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. He shows him babies being born, goats being born, eagles flying to the heights. He shows him everything and asks him, are you capable of running it or understanding it just for a day? 
He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we've never even seen. And he goes into detail and describes it. He takes him to the cliffs. He takes him to the depths of the water. He takes him everywhere. And this huge journey that Job goes on, just blowing his mind at the intricacies and the detail and the sheer grandeur of what God is showing him. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. And this is where, like, for me, this is just the awesome part of the Bible, like, just some random stuff here. But God introduces the behemoth, which, by the way, if I had another son, I want to name him Behemoth. <laughs> what a great name for a son, right? Those of you guys, you're welcome. If you want to ever use that name, you're welcome to use it. Would he not be an excellent football player if his name was Behemoth? Just throwing that out there. He introduced Behemoth. It's a land creature. It's described in poetic terms, but it's basically a land creature, Behemoth. Then in verse 41, uh, chapter 41, verse 1, talks about Leviathan, the sea creature. And now there's all kinds of interpretations for what this is. You know, people can say, is it a giant squid? Is it a kraken? Is it Loch Ness Monster? Is it dinosaurs? A whole bunch of interpretations. And we don't have time to dive into all of it. But for the sake of time, I'm going to go with one more common biblical kind of readings or interpretations of this. Uh, the word Bible commentary s- interprets this as the behemoth as a hippopotamus and Leviathan as a crocodile, right? Behemoth as a hippopotamus and Leviathan as a crocodile. Have you ever looked at a hippopotamus before? When you do, do you ask yourself, what was God thinking when he made a hippopotamus? Am I right? I mean, for me, it looks like something a kid drew up, but not a very talented kid. You know, like a kid like me who draws like pretty, pretty t- horribly, you know, who like doesn't like, oh, I want to draw something really cool. I'm going to draw an awesome animal and I end up with a hippopotamus. That's what a hippopotamus looks like to me. But yeah, I don't know if you know this, but hippos are actually pretty stinking awesome. I mean, they look all squishy and weird, but they're also actually really bad. They're super strong, agile, and aggressive. According to the BBC News, they're even now one of the most dangerous land animals around. And one can see, if you think about it, if back in the day, ancient Near East, we don't have guns and rifles and massive boats. We didn't have, they probably traveled around in like little rafts or stuff, you know, like flimsy tools and flimsy instruments. Could you imagine how dangerous and terrifying that a hippopotamus actually was? The Leviathan or crocodile. Could you imagine how terrifying a huge crocodile must have been to the people of the ancient Near East of the Old Testament? Imagine a 20-foot-long creature weighing over 2,000 pounds. Basically covered in impenetrable armor and has crazy scary teeth. I'm serious. I mean, this is bad. Remember, these people didn't have guns, didn't have modern steel. They couldn't do anything with these animals. Their attempts at harming one of these animals would be foolish, would be laughable. And Behemoth and Leviathan could kill people without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil, but that they're part of this good world. And he made them. But then he doesn't explain why he made them. He just said, these guys are bad. These guys are awesome. They're terrifying. They're incredible. And then, okay, I'm done with that. You're just like, what's God doing? And that's it. That's like God's whole fight. It's kind of weird. I mean, what's this all about? And it seems to be this, guys. From Job's point of view, it's like God is not, he's saying God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's personally interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He could cover in this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. 
So where does this leave Job? It leaves Job in a sense of humility. He never truly learned why he suffered, yet he's able to live in peace and in fear of the Lord. Job processed that God is bigger than he could ever comprehend and chose to trust him and will accept the good and the bad that may come. And that's how the book ends. God ends up restoring everything to Job sevenfold, but we never really get a satisfying answer to the question of why this all happened in the first place. And neither did Job. All we get were more questions than God's response. But these questions make up five crucial points about who God is. And I got these points um, from a sermon that J.D. shared with me once uh, about this end of chapter Job. And these points tie us into what Job understood about God from this question. Number one, Job understood that God is sovereign. In this book, we see God's absolute power over creation, angels, even Satan. We see that Satan could do nothing without God's permission. And we see that God had purposes in creation that go far beyond what we can even understand or see. God talks, even in Job 38, 26, about watering a land where no one lives. Literally, in other words, there are places in this world that has no other purpose, where no human beings, no man has actually seen, but that exists in this universe simply because a sovereign God enjoying his creation. It exists for his glory. And here's the thing, as human beings, we believe everything revolves around us. As human beings, we believe everything around revolves around us, and in Job, we see that it's not the case. The one thing we do know about Job's suffering was that it ultimately brought glory to God. God was demonstrating his glory to Satan and all the angels through Job's suffering, and I know that's a hard thing to hear. I mean, I don't want ultimately my suffering. Why does that have to be my suffering that brings glory to God? Well, it's not only your suffering that brings glory to God. What this statement is saying is God is suffering that everything will be used to bring glory to God, even your suffering. And I want you to hear that, guys, is that it doesn't have to be your suffering. Everything brings glory to God. But God is so good, so big, so powerful that he will use even your suffering to bring glory to God. There's a beautiful symbiotic relationship that occurs when you live for the glory of God, when you know that your life and the way you enjoy it, the way you embrace even suffering, the way you enjoy celebration, difficulties, and troubles, that there's a beautiful relationship that exists when you live the way you're called to live, when you live for the glory of God. That's what you're meant to do. So number one, God is sovereign. He is king. He is ruler. He is in charge. Number two, God's perspective is infinite. The journey Job goes on shows the depth and the width of the viewpoints of a world he couldn't even imagine. He saw the depths of the earth. He saw the ends of the earth and blew his mind away. God's infinitely bigger than our thoughts can comprehend. Now, for Job, he just had to see the ends of the earth and it blew him away. But for us in our modern day with internet and fast travel, like, like if God showed us like the Grand Canyon and then showed us like Mariana's Trench, we wouldn't be that impressed, right? I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, for Job, that would have been like, oh my goodness. For us, we're like, I saw that on the internet the other day. Not that big a deal. But let's go with me. Let's try to comprehend with me how big and glorious and powerful God is, how infinite he is. Astronomers estimate the number of stars. You guys know what a star is? Star up in the sky, as um, Pumbaa put it, like balls of gas in the air. All he thinks about is gas. But they estimate the number of stars at more than 3,000 billion trillion. Let me say that again. They estimate the number of stars as 3,000 billion trillions. Right? Now, if you're like me, numbers like billion, trillion, those numbers can I just become like, I don't, what are you even talking about? 
right? Seriously. So let me help you guys out with this a little bit. One million seconds ago, one million seconds ago, how long ago was that roughly? 11 days, okay? So one million seconds was about 11 days ago. You with me so far? How about a billion seconds ago? Do you remember what you were doing a billion seconds ago? That was 31 years ago, right? 31 years ago is a billion seconds ago. So mostly, some of you guys might not have been born yet, right? Others can realize that's, that's when, you know, I think uh, 1989 is like, I think that's like, what was happening in 1989? I don't even know. <laughs> Batman? Seinfeld? I don't know. What are those? <laughs> Good stuff. The best stuff. All right, that's a billion seconds ago. You ready? How about a trillion? A trillion seconds ago. How long would that be? A trillion. Anybody give me a guess? Try 30,000 BC. A trillion seconds, a trillion seconds ago jumps your number to 30,000 BC. Now think about that for a fact that there are at least 3 billion trillion stars. Each one putting out the same energy as a trillion atom bombs every second is what a star produces. These stars exist in a universe so expansive, so grand that we cannot comprehend it. The Hubble telescope is now sending back just faint images of galaxies that we don't even, haven't even thought about. It. You can't even imagine. Estimated about 12 billion light years away. Do you guys know what a light year is? Anybody? What's a light year? Let me see that one more time. That's right. It's the distance that light can travel. You guys know what the light, how fast light travels, right? It's super, super fast. That's the exact scientific number, right? <laughs> super duper fast it travels. And it travels that fast every second, right? Now, a light year is how fast light can travel, how far light can travel in one year. If the light was just constantly going, constantly traveling at that exact same speed and traveled that far for one whole year, that's one light year. There's stuff that we're seeing pictures of that are 12 billion light years away. My head hurts. Even trying to explain it, my head hurts. It's all beyond even that. And all of them were created in a single moment with a single word from an all-powerful God. His perspective is infinitely beyond ours. Can I tell you guys something? One of our core major to our heart problems is this, is that we don't think of God as that much bigger than us. We only think of God as maybe a slightly smarter version of ourselves. Our minds have a hard time grasping someone so much bigger, so much smarter than us. So what we are able to do is we kind of say, well, God is kind of like us, right? I mean, we're made in the image of God, so he's only slightly smarter than us. Guys, the level that he's beyond us is incomprehensible. The level of God is infinitely bigger and greater and grander than us. We can't even express clearly. We can't comprehend. Guys, he's so much beyond us. Like comparing an ant to a human being is no comparison. It doesn't compare. We're, he's so much grander than even that comparison. Do you guys get that? See, our problem is we just think he's maybe more evolved us or maybe a little smarter us. <laughs> So much bigger and so much grander is God than we are. And the thing is, is that 
In Job, he gets this understanding. He gets hit with this awareness, and his response is humble acceptance. And not, he got, it's not saying he can't have questions. He can have questions, but it's more just seeing the magnitude and the glory and the wisdom of God. He didn't know how to respond. He's infinitely, his perspective is infinitely beyond ours. Three, God's purpose is secure. One of the most encouraging things in this book in this, that we see is that because God is sovereign and because his perspective is infinite, all attempts of Satan and even his, of Job's friends to get Job to curse God or to admit wrong things, nothing comes to fruition. It doesn't go to those plans. It actually, what instead happens is God's purposes, his plans come out to win. And we see this concept played out all throughout Scripture. Strategies of the enemy can defeat the sons of God only to provide salvation for the sons of men. In other words, we see over and over again these things happening that we think are bad. Over and over again, things happening that like the enemy or people are trying to move a story in a negative situation. And God just turns it around and uses it for glory. We see in the book of Acts... We see the persecution of the church, and we think, oh, that's terrible. Christians were being martyred for being followers of the way. But what does that do? That persecution led to complete dispersion. And the church had to separate and had to go and went to the ends of the earth and became known as the church as we know it today. The best illustration of this is actually the cross, where we see the darkest day in history, the moment when we think horror when we see pain and suffering to a whole new level, when we see the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah, dead upon a cross, and we think this is darkness winning, but it's not. Where a bad day turns into Good Friday. Our people, God is doing the same in your struggles and in your pain. He's yielding something in it. It will not be meaningless. It will produce something good that God sees. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the, the woman who came up with the five stages of grief, she says this, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. God, God will accomplish his purposes. His people will inherit the earth. And he's even now using difficult situations, suffering in your life to produce something glorious in you and through you. Number four, God's promises are eternal. Job 19.25 says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. A few things about this verse, in the end, I love this idea, in the end, in eternity. That's what this means, that in the end, at the end of all things, he will stand on the earth. The last scene in the book of Job is God restoring to Job sevenfold, all that he's lost. Now remember this, guys. He didn't deserve everything being taken away. So that means he did, he's not getting this as a reward. God just chose to give it back to him. But look, he got sevenfold all that he lost. Guys, seven is a picture of eternity. It's this holy number of completion, of holiness. And in this scene, we're given a glimpse of what eternity would be like. When God restores all that is lost and everything will be made right. Guys, I want you to understand this. I'll say this again. Job did nothing to deserve the suffering. 
So he did nothing to get all the sevenfold return as a reward. That's not what happened. He didn't get it as a reward. But he got it because God wanted to show in this illustration of Job for us today that we don't deserve it, but what we're going to get is a restored and renewed heavens and earth where there'll be no more tears and no more suffering. That our future, what it entails for us, what our future holds for us, is eternal relationship with God with nothing broken. The way it was meant to be. God restores everything and gives us a glimpse of what perfect joy looks like. Psalm 16:11 says, In your presence is the fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, joy that cannot get any stronger, joy that will last for eternity. Think about like eternity. When we think about the scale of things, eternity always freaked me out, by the way. Right? I'll just be honest with you guys. That was one of the things that as a, even now, sometimes I'm like, eternity, forever. I, I, my mind is so small to even comprehend eternity, I just cannot even come close to doing. But we think about this idea that the whole life you live so far will just be like a, a blip in light of eternity. That means compared to eternity, what we go through here in life is like a vapor. Mother Teresa said, compared to eternity, the worst things on earth are like nothing more than a bad night at a cheap hotel. What perspective she had. Recognizing that the key to coping sometimes with suffering in this life is that we can look heavenward and know that our destiny and our future are secure. Mother Teresa said we can endure all these things, we can endure all this pain because our hope is that there is a sure and beautiful rest coming our way. And I'll be honest with you guys, I know I can endure. If I know at the end of the road there is something beautiful coming, I can endure a little bit of suffering. I can endure more suffering when I know that beautiful thing is coming more fully. When I'm so confident in the beautiful thing that is coming that I can endure even the most suffering. Because eternity is coming. And he's going to make all that is wrong right one day. My people, may our confidence and our ability to cope and deal with suffering now rest in the fact that we are confident that our our future is secure and one day God will make all things right. Number five, God's presence is promised. I love, once again, Job 19, 25. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. What was Job thinking about when he wrote this? Because, I mean, on this slide of Jesus and what he did on the cross and his resurrection, we kind of get it. We're on the side of Jesus, we saw our Redeemer come, we saw him stand on the earth. But, the, but did Job know? Did Job know that there was going to be a redeemer coming to take the punishment of our sins so we would never be separated from God again? Did he know that this redeemer would be wounded so we could be healed? That he would be abandoned so that we could be eternally embraced? I kind of wonder how much Job knew here. And I also wondered, I asked a question um, to to my wife and uh, some people we were having dinner with yesterday. I was like, why was Job righteous? How was Job righteous? What made him righteous, right? Do you guys ever ask that question? Anybody ever wonder that question? What made some old people in the Old Testament righteous apart from Jesus, right? Because they didn't know Jesus yet. How are they considered righteous? Right? It's a tough question, isn't it? And I'm going to say one word. I'm going to say faith. But you're going to be like, okay, did they have faith in what? And I'm going to say, no, no, not their faith. God's faith. What I mean by that is their faith with God, working that God kept his covenant promises with his people And he made righteousness that came later through what Jesus did, but ultimately through the relationship covenant promises throughout the whole line of who God is and his relationship with his people. 
But in this situation, we have Job here, and Job is wondering, not knowing exactly what it's going to look like, but he had faith that there is going to be a coming Redeemer. And because this Redeemer came from God's presence, or because this Redeemer comes, God's presence is forever promised to us. This is what this promise of a Redeemer is. He's saying, my life, everything that is wrong, everything that is right, everything that has happened in this earth, there's somebody coming who's going to redeem it, who's going to make it right, and he's going to make my relationship with God right. And he believed in this coming Messiah. A.W. Tozer says this, With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Let me read that again. With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? If there ever was a time when it looked like God was absent or had lost control, I want you to understand it is those times and those moments where we need to choose to believe that God is still working because we know that he's sovereign, because we know that his, his, his perspective is infinite, because we know he's eternal, because we know his purpose is secure, and we know that his presence was promised to us and fulfilled in the work of Jesus. It might feel like a dark time in your moment of your soul. It might feel like not much is happening. But you need to remember that the Redeemer came and stood in your place, entered into your pain for you, took death for you, and now stands victoriously by your side in the resurrection, promising that one day you'll stand with him in eternity. So that in our pain, we have his presence. Jesus never said that in this world we will not have trouble. As a matter of fact, he said the opposite. Jesus literally promised. He said, I promise. He literally said, this is a promise. Something that's going to happen. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Because he has overcome the world. Take heart because he is with you. Take heart. The one who has overcome, is his presence is with you. And that's what God showed Job. That he is sovereign. That his perspective is infinite. His purpose is secure. His promise is eternal. And his presence is promised. Job wanted answers. God gave him presence. And that presence was enough. As soon as Job saw who God was, Job was satisfied. Guys, my people, can you tell you this? When you see the beauty of Christ, you stop asking why and start trusting the who. We often need explanations, don't we? We want to know, God, why are you doing this? Why is this happening? You're like Job and you're like his friends. God, if you just explain it all, maybe I'd be satisfied. Honestly, there's not enough answers that will ever satisfy us. What you really need is not more answers. You need more of presence. You need God. And you need to trust that a revelation of God is not an explanation of suffering. It is, it's just who God is, and he gives himself to us, and it's enough. It's enough. This experience has been the experience of countless believers and sufferers throughout the years. Corey Ten Boom, who suffered for years in Nazi prison camp, wrote, No matter how deep our darkness, God is deeper still. When it comes to suffering, there is no good answers that we often like. There's no, it's not a clear, even picture. It's not, oh, I suffered this. Sometimes it's given that way. Sometimes you suffer this thing so that, oh, but I can help this person. Oh, I suffered this, but millions of other people got saved. Oh, I Sometimes that happens. That's great. But guys, that's not the answer either. The answer is, in the midst of my suffering, God, I need you. And I choose to trust you that your wisdom is far superior than mine. That's why he doesn't come up with answers. That's why he doesn't tell them what happened. He says, here's just me, Job. I'm enough. 
we're going to hear a short little testimony from Megan Hinkle talking about how God is enough. Um, I'm Megan, Megan Hinkle, and I've been coming to Waypoint for about a year and a half now. So I grew up in a Christian household, and I got saved when I was uh, really young. Um, and so it was always a part of my life, my faith, but um, definitely got challenged um, more as I uh, went kind of leaving middle school, going into high school, so it was like 14, 15. Um, as I started having some health challenges, I was uh, diagnosed with juvenile arthritis when I was 14, which basically means my immune system has decided to attack my joints. For a while, I was pretty sick. Um, I was going to hospitals a lot, and um, I couldn't walk, so I was using a wheelchair. It was a challenging time, and so, which is why it brought me to Job a lot, um, because I, I liked what I saw there and didn't see necessarily in other parts of Scripture. Um, first of all, that suffering doesn't, I mean, we don't always know the reason, um, and it doesn't mean we did anything wrong or that we lack faith. Um, so that was really helpful for me uh, to see that and just to really learn how to lament, I think. That God doesn't always alleviate our suffering or he doesn't answer our prayers in the way we want to. I wanted to be healed. He didn't answer that prayer, but he walked through me, walked with it through me. He, um, some things that in particular, he pr actually provided me with, I got in contact with someone the same age as me who lived a few hours away, but same age, same diagnosis, and we were kind of at the same spot. And so having her to talk to was, was so great. And she was a Christian too, um, so we could encourage each other both from a faith, and she, it was someone who could understand and just be there because she was walking through it. Um, and there were just uh, instances when he took care of our family financially, um, provided funds that we didn't know where they were going to come from um, for surgeries and things. So, so yeah, so I've gone to Job a lot and I've found, I think, comfort there and just that at the end of the book, when um, God is talking to Job and he shows um, him just basically like the complexities of the world and you know, do you understand how any of this works and obviously our answer is no, only God knows. Um, and so I felt like it, it was just saying to me that um, like and nothing that happened to me was like by chance or because something fell through the cracks like God knew. Um, he knew what the diagnosis would mean. He knew every test and procedure that I would have to go through and just like every difficulty in dealing with other 16-year-olds um, when, when you're really sick and they're not. Um, and yeah, so I just felt like he, he really is in control and that, um, yeah, that like it just, he knew everything that was going to happen uh, and there is some sort of plan for it, even though I don't feel like I've gotten to know it and I still, um, some days I still struggle with like wondering why my pain hasn't ended, um, even though I'm like walking now and doing relatively a lot better. Um, so I still kind of, it's a daily um, thing that I have to deal with. Um, and so some days are, <laughs> bad days in terms of just wanting to know, um, but God also provides and some days are good days even with um, the circumstances uh, that he's given me. But I think Job's friends had it right at the beginning when they showed up 
and they sat with him for seven days and didn't say anything. Sometimes I think that's just what you need, someone who's not gonna leave and not gonna say like, oh, it's gonna get better because maybe it won't, um, but someone to just be there. Draws you to God just to say like, I, I need you to get through this day or I need you to get through, you know, these next 10 minutes or whatever it is. Um, so, and he always is there. He always like provides that there are things that he will provide and he is faithful. Um, he'll always like be there for us even when we don't, he's not answering things the way we want them to. He always hears us. Um, also, I think that's what joy is, that God provides that for us to be able to experience suffering um, and experience like happiness and joy. And that can be confusing if you haven't thought about it or experienced it yourself, but that's what suffering people um, who have the joy of Christ are always doing, is living in that kind of contradiction. Thank you, Megan. I don't know if she's here. Thank you, Megan, for sharing that word. Oh, she's over in children's ministry. What a beautiful picture of the reality of living in suffering. Every one of us will suffer. I promise you, if you haven't yet, you will. And for all the little kids, I'm sorry. That's going to happen to you too. It's a contradiction that happens in life, though, that as we try to figure out, as we live in this complex universe and this thing called life, is this contradiction of how do we know that we're going to suffer and the fear, the pain, the anxiety from it, but at the same time know that we're also going to have joy and happiness and moments of goodness in the land of the living. How do we live in this contradiction of, of, of knowing that our future and eternity is heaven is secure and we can celebrate that and look towards heavenward at the same time live purposefully in this earth now? And I know most of you guys know my favorite word is tension. That's like the word I use all the time is tension. And even in our suffering, can we find tension? The way that we can trust God at the same time but also still lament and cry out to him? The way we could live in this world with confidence in the future, but also looking for the beauty and looking forward to the future eternity that's up before us, yet live fully in the presence that God has given us. May we live in that tension together. My people, my church, people whom I love dearly, trust and know that our God is bigger and greater, and he is good. As we trust in that, know that he will one day make all things that was wrong right and have hope in that future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, God, for the book of Job and the story that you've given us of, of, of a suffering person who suffered greatly, who cried out and lament to you, and for the questions that comes up in our, even in every human experience is why does suffering happen, God? And thank you for the image that you've given us, the questions and your response that you've given us that says that how big you are, that we can trust how big you are, that you're sovereign, your ways are infinitely beyond us, your plans are secure, God, but ultimately, our, our eternity is before us, but all, and ultimately you give us your presence. And your presence is worth more in your hand, and your presence is joy forever. So thank you for giving us yourself. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.